Today's reading is from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep's Gate a pool, which in Arabic is called Besheba, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. It was a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed, and one of them that had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there, he learned that he had been in that condition for such a long time, and he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am trying to get in, somebody else gets ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. On that day on which this this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. And they said to him, Who is this fellow who would told you to pick, pick it up and walk? And the man was healed and had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Thanks, Chris. I'm going to pray uh, as we take a little bit of a closer look at that passage. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you particularly for the Gospel of John. Please, may your spirit, who inspired John to pen those words, illumine our hearts and our minds now, that we might be moved to want what you want. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to uh, take a look at uh, a few real-life street signs. And uh, as they come up, just think about which you think are the most helpful. So here's the first one. Uh, what do you think? A helpful street sign? Yeah. Obviously, someone putting that together thought not. Good luck. Uh, what about this one? Now, it's true. Um, I'm not usually looking at falling cows, so I guess... Uh, it'd be good to know if that was a regular thing on this stretch of road. But even then, a falling cow is pretty big and I imagine pretty fast. Who knows if that's helpful? <laughs> yeah. Too late. Uh, I'm not sure about this one. Um, is the caution for those on the bike to actually put their feet down um, or for drivers to look out for deformed bike riders? Uh, what about this one? I guess depending on who the guy in the wheelchair is and whether people like him or not, uh, could have a bunch of different meanings. Um, Now, how about this one? That's probably the most helpful sign that we've seen so far, right? Uh, Who knows how many lives this sign has saved? And even though it's pretty bold, it's pretty confronting, you could say it's actually loving. uh, Because 
to not have this warning sign would have meant that people would have died. Now, imagine someone saying this warning. Wrong way. Go back. Wrong way. Go back. Wrong way. Go back. Doesn't matter how you say it. Uh, it's confronting, isn't it? Uh, and it almost sounds judgmental uh, because it's saying to someone, you need to stop going the way that you've chosen to go. Now, that doesn't mean it's unloving, does it? Well, today, in the passage that we're looking at, we're going to see a warning from Jesus. Uh, a warning that's quite confronting, but it's nonetheless loving. And as we look at this, we'll see it's going to mean a couple of things for different people. So, that's where we're going uh, in the passage today. Firstly, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is God. Uh, secondly, that he lovingly warns people, which means, thirdly, uh, those who don't yet believe in him should heed his warning. And finally, for those who do believe in him, that we should be prepared to share Jesus' warning and lovingly warn others. So, first up, Jesus is God. Uh, last week in chapter 4, we saw Jesus demonstrate his power, his divine power, as he heals a boy miles away just by speaking. And, and this passage continues that divine story. Ultimately, it's just another part in the big unveiling of who Jesus is in the, in the whole of the Gospel of John. That he's more than a man, even a great man, he, even the greatest man. He's God himself which the Jews accuse him of claiming to be, as we read in verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And in a sense, they're, they're right to want Jesus dead, because according uh, to God's own law, that's the proper punishment for someone who breaks the Sabbath, let alone someone who claims to be God or equal with God. But if he is God then he's got the right to break the Sabbath by working on it and healing people, like the disabled guy in this passage. After all, up from the beginning, God's never stopped working. Right? Sustaining life in the universe, he's at work. And if Jesus is God, the Son, then he's got the right to call God his own Father and the right to make himself equal with God but only if he's actually more than a good man, or even the greatest man. He's got the right to say these things only if he is God. Which is why C.S. Lewis's words, penned uh, so long ago uh, in his great little book, Mere Christianity, They Still Stand. It's a longish quote, uh, but it's worth uh, repeating if you haven't read it before. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronising nonsense 
about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. It's a good quote. And we see Jesus here in this passage claiming to be God. And so we see he's either a madman or he's God. Now it's the bold person who says they think Jesus is a madman. Because it's hard to understand why a madman would and could heal people like he did, this disabled man. Madmen don't make things better, they break things. They make things worse. But not Jesus, because Jesus is God. And it's with that in mind that we see Jesus, as God, loves people enough to warn them. Which is the second point. Jesus lovingly warns people. He warns them about something worse than anything else in this life. No matter how bad life here and now might be. And let's face it, it was pretty bad for the disabled man in this passage. Right? Uh, we read in verse 3, situation. In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, uh, there was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. I uh, I read recently of a a paraplegic man describing his life. He talked about uh, problems with mobility and livelihood and social isolation and particularly personal hygiene. Paraplegics often don't have bowel or bladder control, uh, which can lead to mess and infections. And that's... His story was in our context with the helps, all the helps of the 21st century. Now imagine a paraplegic in the 1st century and being that way for 38 years. Unless someone took that, uh, that guy places, he'd have to crawl. Most of his money probably would have come from begging or from the charity of his friends and family. And if he didn't have great bladder or bowel control, he probably would have been in his own filth a lot of the time. Nobody would have wanted to be around him. And it was like that for 38 years. His life would have been an endless torment. A living hell, some might say. And yet after Jesus heals him and finds him again, he tells him in verse 14, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now he isn't saying this man's sickness is necessarily the result of some sin that he's done. Later on in chapter 9, Jesus hints that sickness isn't always to be regarded as punishment, God's punishment for sin, as the Bible makes clear elsewhere, like in the book of Job. And at any rate, what could be worse than this guy's life before he was healed? His life was a hell on earth. What could be worse than that? Well, hell proper is worse. And John's already told us the only way to escape this is to believe in Jesus. We read in chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The worst thing ever is for God's wrath to remain on you and to not see eternal life. That is the worst thing. And so the sin Jesus is talking about back here in chapter 5, it must be unbelief, not believing in Jesus. For the man to stop sinning then, 
as Jesus tells him to, means he needs to stop rejecting Jesus. He needs to believe in Jesus. He needs to believe Jesus is the only way to escape the worst thing of God's wrath remaining on him for eternity, which is what sin deserves. The consequence and punishment of a sin is to suffer God's wrath for eternity because sin is that bad. Sin is the rubbish way that we treat God and others. In fact, uh, it's deeper than that. It's that thing inside that says, well, I know what's best for me, so I'll do what's good for me first. It's an attitude that, that mistrusts God and works to secure your own life in, on your own terms over and against God and his ways. It's an attitude that comes with an inflated and clueless view of your own knowledge and power and privilege. An attitude that pretends to be God. An attitude that would be laughable if it wasn't so offensive. It's like the twisted face on a racist. Ugly, unapologetically guilty and violent. It just needs to be dealt with and put away and wiped off. Because this kind of attitude and behaviour not only pushes God away, it rightly offends him. And so in his righteous anger, he'll give people what they want, what they deserve, and that's eternal separation from him. Which means eternal separation from the author of life and all the good things in this life. An eternity of being separated from everyone and everything good, of being banished to only misery. This is hell. And this is what sin deserves. What we all deserve as sinners. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want that for anyone. Certainly not for the disabled man. He's just healed him. We've seen that. Clearly he wants to help him, not to destroy him. And so he goes on to keep helping him by lovingly warning him. Stop sinning. Don't suffer God's wrath. Believe in me. Now who knows if this guy saw uh, Jesus' love in this warning and ends up believing in him. After all, everyone in Jerusalem uh, is going to know about Jesus soon. After Jesus rises from the dead and goes back to the Father, the Apostle Peter, he's going to get up in front of a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem and start the ball rolling, telling everyone in Jerusalem how Jesus is the Christ and that he died for the forgiveness of sins. We can only hope that uh, this healed man hears this, remembers Jesus' warning to escape that, that, that something worse, hears the love for him in that warning and then puts his faith in Jesus. But who knows if he did? We're not told. But we do know this, Jesus is still God and he still wants people to escape that something worse. And so his warning here, it still stands. It might be confronting, but it's loving because hell is serious. Which means a couple of things for us, which is uh, the third and the fourth point. Uh, those who aren't believing in Jesus should heed his warning and those of us who are believing in Jesus, we should be prepared to share that warning, pass it on. So to those who aren't believing in Jesus, speaking to you at the moment, if you're here amongst us, it might be uh, that like the disabled man in this story, that something unexpected, something good, maybe something remarkable or, or moving has happened to you recently something you didn't ask for, something you weren't even looking for, some gift has kind of landed in your lap and you've got no idea uh, why or 
where it came from or whether you deserve it. And, and like the disabled man in this story. And maybe like him, as he pinned his hopes on the stirring of the water in the pool, you've been pinning your hopes on something too. And maybe you've been pinning your hopes on that thing for years, but something's happened, something that's made you rethink that. Rethink your life in a good way. Something that's got you thinking about your life and your hopes and your dreams. Maybe some windfall, some triumph or success or gift or realisation. The the light bulb has gone off. Please see that thing, whatever it is, for what it is today, a gift from Jesus. He is God after all. Uh, He gives every good thing in this world for our enjoyment. So please see that thing, whatever it is, as a gift from Jesus. A gift paving the way for something better from him. A loving warning. A warning to stop sinning and to believe in him. To accept he was prepared to suffer what you deserve. To bear the wrath of God in your place. To suffer that horrible separation from God as he died on that cross in your place, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you wouldn't have to? Jesus endured this. He bore this. The separation and isolation and misery of sin. He drank it to the dregs for us, for you, in your place. Even though he was the only one who didn't deserve it. So that we could be saved. Saved from an eternity of the same. And so... As you think on that thing in your life, or maybe it's a number of things that you didn't ask for, that, that you've been blessed in some way, see it for what it is, a gift from Jesus, paving the way for a, another better gift, a loving warning from him. And I beg you, please listen to him. Hear his love for you in this warning. Stop sinning and believe in him. Escape that something worse. The Bible tells us uh, that if you tell God you're sorry, Sorry for the rubbish ways you've treated him and others. And if you look to Jesus and his death in your place for your forgiveness, God promises to forgive you and to save you from that eternal separation from him. So please, if you haven't already, hear Jesus' loving warning today. Trust and rely on him today. And please let us know if you've made that step today or recently so that we might be able to help you to get to know and love Jesus more. And for those of us here who are already believing Jesus in Jesus, I think Jesus gives us an example of what we might do for his sake here. And that's to be prepared to share Jesus' warning. To be prepared to lovingly warn people. Because firstly, we should love them enough uh, to want to warn them. It's interesting that the famous magician and outspoken atheist, Penn Gillette, He once commented on a gentleman uh, giving him a Bible after one of his shows and he actually admired the guy. He said repeatedly in this little uh, blog spot that he put on YouTube uh, that that this guy was a good guy because in the act of giving him a Bible he showed that he cared enough for him to do what he did. Even though it didn't change Penn's atheistic, atheistic views on God, nonetheless, Penn goes on to say this, He says, how much do you have to hate someone to believe heaven and hell and eternal life is possible and not tell them because it'll be socially awkward? It's a good question. 
the fear of that something else for those who don't trust in Jesus should be at least part of what motivates us to love them enough to warn them. So perhaps, firstly, in being prepared to lovingly warn people of hell, we need to ask God to give us a greater sense of how dire this situation is and to reckon afresh with just how horrible hell is and care more for those who are rushing headlong into it, unforgiven. So as we prayerfully look to love people in this way, we should also pray for opportunities to share this warning. Opportunities that are more likely uh, if we get involved in people's lives and love them. Love them like Jesus loved the uh, disabled man. Now, of course, we can't miraculously heal people on the spot like him, uh, but there's a bunch of other ways that we think and things that we can do. Unexpected and delightful things we can do for others to show our love for them and so forge friendships and trust so that they're in a spot to listen to us when, when uh, Jesus comes up and we have opportunity to lovingly warn them. Now, just recently I was chatting with a guy who due to the generosity of uh, Christians that he knows, it's actually uh, the generosity of uh, this church family. He's taken time out to log on and listen to church online. Loving people works. So let's look to love people so we might be able to lovingly warn them. Sam Chan, uh, the gifted communicator and Christian author, uh, in his recent book, How to Talk About Jesus, he's got a bunch of great reflections and hints on how to get to a place with people uh, so that talking to them about Jesus uh, is more likely. It'll be really worth grabbing that book and having a look, if you haven't already. It's an easy read, it's a short read, I knocked it off in a couple of hours and the chapters, they're self-contained so you don't have to read it all in one sitting. It'd be the perfect gift to give your unbelieving friends and family this Christmas if you read it and take on board some of your suggestions. Interestingly, in uh, one of the last chapters in that book, uh, Sam encourages us to get better at telling a better story and making people wish that Christianity is true. He says... No matter who your friends are and what they've been through, the Bible has a story about Jesus that will speak to them. And this is true, even when it comes to the topic of hell. Because the Bible itself uh, cleverly uses three predominant metaphors, pictures of, of hell, which I reckon are helpful to have in mind. Uh, those metaphors are banishment, ruin, and punishment. It's worth keeping at least these in mind as we prepare to lovingly warn people so that we love them uh, by being sensitive to which of these pictures, these metaphors, perhaps best meets them where they're at as we have opportunity to share. So, for instance, some, uh, for some it might be the idea of justice being served on wrongdoing. You know, that that's the idea they really value and cherish. And so hell as the just punishment for wronging God, the whole do, you do the crime, you do the time idea, that that might resonate more with them. And so Jesus taking that punishment in our place so that we might escape it, that that might meet people where they're at. Or for others, there might be the idea of punishment or separation, which is where I went earlier, that people value relationships, being at the heart of life. And so the idea of hell being eternally separated from God, not having a good relationship with him, of having a broken relationship with him and, and everyone else, and the misery of that forever, that that picture of hell might hit home, particularly for some. 
such that the news of Jesus' suffering that, separa- that separation on the cross for us so that God uh, could be reconciled to us and would truly have us as his friends forever, that that might grab someone where they're at. Or it might be the idea of hell as eternal ruin. Uh, the idea that there's, there's got to be a point to life, you know, some purpose, some direction, and that people really value uh, this and the idea that, that hell is an eternity of having no purpose or direction, of ruin, of being lost forever, that this might be what gets them considering Jesus more and his promise of, of them being found and given eternal purpose and eternal direction in following him and, and being a part of his life and mission. That might ring true, more true for some. Whatever it is for people, uh, let's work hard at uh, loving them, listening to them and getting to know them so that we know how best to frame up that something worse for them when opportunity arises to share how Jesus is the only escape from it. So as those who are saved, let's be prayerfully loving people uh, out of love for them and with love for them, being ready to share Jesus' warning of of that something worse so that they might believe in Jesus too and be saved from it. Now, in finishing up, it may be in all our efforts to love people and to lovingly warn them when Jesus comes up that things will still get awkward, maybe as we land on things that we just can't agree on. But here's the thing, at some stage we've got to expect this because no matter how loving we've been or how careful we've worked at the way that we talk about Jesus with them, at some stage the gospel is going to be confronting and offensive. It's like that warning sign that we started with. Even though it's for our good, it's confronting. Because it, it, it runs contrary to the way people want to go. And like this, the gospel warning is going to be confronting. And it's going to offend people. Particularly as we touch on touchy issues, like homosexuality or transgenderism or other religions or, or hell itself. But when we get to that point, it's best to just... Lean into Jesus to say that our views are Jesus' views on these things, that we believe the things we believe not because they're what we prefer to be true, but we believe because this is what Jesus himself tells us is true. And as we've been reminded today, Jesus is God, after all, who loves people enough to give them good things that they didn't even ask for so that they might trust him to hear him give them something even better. A loving warning to stop sinning and escape that something worse by believing in him. So let's be prepared to, to listen to Jesus' loving warning, to lean into him and to lovingly pass that warning on to others. And I'm going to pray that we uh, do that even over this Christmas period uh, in and into the new year now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you that uh, Jesus is God. And in his divine power and knowledge, he demonstrates that he wields those uh, omnipotence uh, and omniscience, all that power for the good of others, to love them. And pray that for those who don't yet trust in Jesus, that they might reckon with their life, with all the good things that they've been given as gifts from you, as gifts from Jesus, and to hear in that 
the greater gift of his warning to turn from their sin and to believe in him and to escape that something worse. Please help us as those who know this salvation, who have escaped hell by trusting in Jesus, that we will be moved to love others, to be prepared to love them in such a way that opportunity arises for us to pass that loving warning on to them and that we be prepared uh, to do that in a way that meets them where they're at. And we ask and pray now for those that we know and love, our friends and family who aren't trusting in Jesus, that this Christmas they might unwrap the greatest gift of all, the gift of your loving warning to stop their unbelief put their faith in Jesus and be saved. Please use us in seeing that happen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.